0: Please be seated. It's my spare mic down there. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we now calm our hearts and set aside the distractions of the world around us. We open our ears to hear your word on a whole new level. As children of God and members of the new kingdom, your kingdom, we long to hear from your Son, and we listen for all that you say, Lord Jesus. We listen to all you want to teach us about your will and how, she, how we should live our lives for you. Help us to obey and to truly follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, today we are starting a new series, a series on the Sermon of the Mount called That Sermon. I almost called it That Inconvenient Sermon because uh, for many of Jesus' teachings, uh, I think as we're confronted with them, we might feel that they're a little inconvenient given how we've often chosen to live our lives. The sermon is focused on Christian lifestyle. And The Bible says that when we come to faith in Jesus, we are regenerated, we are made into a new person, we are a new creation. And so the question is, as new creation people, how then shall we live? And what should the new community look like? Well, a great many of those answers are found in this sermon, in the Sermon of the Mount. Uh, as Brethren in Christ Church, uh, we are a Brethren in Christ Church, part of that denomination. And, and as a church, we have a very long history with this passage. In fact, you could say that our, a lot of our theology has been based out of the teachings that are found right here in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me show you a little bit here. Uh, in, in our denomination, our historical approach to Scripture, you know, 250 years ago when we began Uh, We didn't know a lot about the Bible. We just knew that we wanted to follow Jesus. And and we knew the Bible was important, and so the Bible is, is the first circle up there in our theology. The Bible becomes our way of life, the way that we walk and talk and learn. Then you approach to narrow the focus. We narrowed our focus to the New Testament. Why do we go to the New Testament? Because it's where Jesus and teachings are and the story of his life And then we particularly narrow that again, that focus to the Gospels, which really focus on the life of Jesus and Jesus' teaching. And and if we were to pick any one place where we centered our theology, it would be in the Sermon on the Mount, which would be our center circle with Jesus right there in the middle. Uh, And and we started out that way because um, we wanted to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, you know, It's uh, As we look and we see how Jesus taught, uh, we understood that this sermon was about how we should live as born-again believers. If Jesus said it, we tried to do it. It was the core of our belief. We are open to the hearing from God, and we walk as as close as we can in Jesus' footsteps. So, I want to look at this important sermon, if you'd open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. We're starting in 5, of course. The context is the kingdom of God. Matthew 4 tells us that, um, that after his time in the wilderness, Jesus began his preaching ministry, and he began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near." And Matthew tells us that Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And he tells us that news about Jesus started to spread. And people from all over the place who were ill or possessed came and Jesus healed them. First people from Syria and then large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and the region across the Jordan all followed him. So this is where the Sermon on the Mount begins. All these, this big crowd of people, a very mixed group of people from different walks of life began to follow him and it says that Jesus then went up on the mountain, oh there we are, went up on the mountainside, I knew it was going to do that, went on the mountainside and sat down, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. It's kind of a practical thing, isn't it? You know, If he went up on the mountain, they could see him easily, they could probably hear him easily, and he could address a much larger crowd than he normally could. Well, in this first section of the sermon, we call it the Beatitudes. Now, that comes from a Latin translation of the word for blessing. So let's uh, read through them together. Let's begin. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We're going to be looking at the first four of the Beatitudes this week. We don't want to shortchange this, this important teaching. And uh, we'll do that second part next week. Now, if you're like me when you read the Beatitudes, um, certain things kind of stand out to you. Certain things pop out, like the word Blessed. That really comes out. Uh, Some translations say happy. I'm not real fond of that translation, but um, the word blessed comes out, and you look at some of these situations, and, and you see that some of them are in negative situations, the poor in spirit, the people in mourning, the people being persecuted, and Jesus says, blessed are these people. Blessed. How can we be blessed in these situations when it's a struggle? What's that all about? Some of these things just don't feel like blessing. Well, they are blessed because Jesus is promising something better here. In him, we move forward from where we started to a new place. We move always from where we are to where he will take us, wherever that will be. That's how we can be blessed. Our current blessing comes from a future promise. We could find some element of contentment in the situation that we're in because we know that there's something so much better that everything we're experiencing here pales by comparison. The word blessed is an interesting Greek word. It doesn't translate really well into English. It's makarios in, in Greek means blessed, but it holds more than just the word blessed. It's the promise of true happiness. And so there's this future element of it as well. Uh, promise of joy and wholeness and peace, like the word shalom. Uh, shalom encompasses not just, you know, peace, man. It's bigger than that. It's, it's the whole way of life. It's a whole way of being. Myron Augsburger says that it incorporates this meaning of wholeness and joy and well-being and the kind of peace we call shalom. It's the promise and assurance that is coming to those who believe. So first, Jesus says in verse 8, the first of these uh, promises, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, because we know that Jesus had a care for the poor, sometimes people translate this or, or interpret this to mean, you know, we're talking about the poor specifically. But that's not what this says. This is talking about the poor in spirit. Jesus is talking to people who recognize that they really have nothing to offer God, nothing of any value. Because in your sin, you are in spiritual poverty, you are destitute spiritually. And and it's coming to a place in yourself where you realize that without Jesus, you're eternally lost. I I worked in addiction recovery for a couple of years, and um, I met a lot of people who made amazing recovery, and many, if not most of them, began their journey of recovery when they hit what they call rock bottom. Rock bottom. And rock bottom for an addict or an alcoholic is so low you can't get much lower and continue to live. The end, if we continue to pursue the way we were going, was death. You realize that you can't do it on your own. And sometimes it takes some pretty dramatic event in your life for that to happen. I've seen people lose their homes, their families, They couldn't even live in their car because they lost their car. They ended up on the street. And, and, you know, for some people, it just took an extreme crisis for them to come to that that place where the light bulb suddenly turns on. It's like, I I can't stay here. This is going to kill me. But so many people I've known have come to realize that the problem was their spiritual poverty above everything else. And so many of them came to Jesus through faith. That's one of the reasons I I loved working in the recovery because it, it was honest and it was raw and people were ready for the healing power of Jesus. Thankfully, most of us do not end up in such extreme places. But maybe you've come to a place in your life where you're beginning to feel your own mortality. Maybe you're getting older. Maybe the whole year and a half through COVID has been frightening enough to make you think, you know, that could happen to me. I might not make it through here. Maybe you're beginning to realize that your status or your money or the nice house or the car just isn't enough. Maybe you've come to that place of spiritual poverty where you feel that giant hole in your heart that you just can't fill with anything. And spiritually speaking, to be spiritually poor is to finally get over yourself, to finally get past yourself to the point when you realize yourself just ain't enough. To realize that nothing and no one can fill that emptiness except God. Only God will do. You need God through Jesus. And there is no other name that will satisfy. And that's the starting place in a relationship with God. So Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's not the person with the fastest car, not the person with the biggest retirement savings account, or the woman with the most likes on Facebook or most followers on Twitter. It's the one who comes to God humbly and empty and ready to be filled. And if that's you, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Second beatitude we have here Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The word mourn that's used here is the strongest word for mourn in the New Testament. It means to mourn somebody who has died. You ever mourn for somebody who's died? Have you ever lost somebody in your life? That pain, it hurts, that brokenness. I remember mourning my grandmother, you know, when she died. Um, I got a phone call from my dad one morning just as I was standing outside the sanctuary door, just coming in to lead worship that morning, and my dad called and told me that she had passed, And, and it was a rough morning. During my teenage years, which my parents were so preoccupied with other things, my grandmother was the constant. She was always there. She lived with us, and, and she'd get us on the bus in the morning, sometimes made our lunches and things like that. I sometimes think of her as my second mom. And when she died, I grieved her, especially since she'd had Alzheimer's for the last few years before she died. And, and I had come to Christ In faith, and I was unsure whether she knew the Lord. So I was distressed. My heart was really torn because, you know, I cared very deeply for her. And I cared about her eternal home. And I also was just going to plain miss her. She was going to be gone from my life. She was the first person in my life who I was close to who died. Some of you have lost a parent. Some of you have lost a grandparent or somebody you're very close to. Maybe you've lost a friend or lost a child. The pain is so bad, it's physical sometimes. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because our ultimate end is not mourning. In Jesus, we will receive comfort. You know, it wasn't until my grandmother's funeral, where I was assisting with the funeral, first funeral I'd ever done, um, and I I found out during the funeral, after the service, an aunt of mine came up and told me that that not long before my grandmother began to be overcome with Alzheimer's, that she led my grandmother to saving faith in Jesus. That sure eased my grief. Because of Jesus, I know that we will be together again. And then when my mom got cancer and got sick, I had the privilege of being by her bedside and and praying with her to receive Jesus. And you have no idea how hard it was to leave there and come across the country home again, knowing that it was probable that she was going to die before I could get back again. Or maybe some of you do know what that's like. But the Holy Spirit comforted me because I'm going to see her again in heaven. There is a direct connection between Jesus' words here, for they will be comforted, and his words elsewhere when he sends the Holy Spirit as comforter. Blessed are you who mourn, because there is the promise of a better day. And in the meantime, if you are in Christ, there is a comfort that can come from the Holy Spirit, from God, in our mourning. Well, the third thing Jesus says here is, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Sometimes this is translated, blessed are the gentle." You know, meekness is not weakness, right? The Holy Spirit in you is strong. The gentle spirit that you have is the disciplined or controlled spirit. Originally, the word uh, meek meant the reining in of a stallion. It's the idea of a horse being controlled by bit or bridle. It represents genuine humility, Myron Augsburger says, The pride of the rabbis was in learning, of the Greeks in intellect, and the Romans in power. But it's only the humble who can receive, who can learn or be taught, who can accept forgiveness, who can walk in grace or walk in love. Do you have a teachable spirit? Many Christians don't. Uh, They know what they know. You have to prove it otherwise. But a disciple is a student. We're talking about learning at the feet of Jesus. You know, in our culture, we have defined pride as a virtue. We don't admire meekness and humility. We celebrate assertiveness and aggression, especially in the last couple of years. When was the last time you saw a movie with the good guy who restrains himself when he gets the opportunity for revenge? when he didn't blow stuff up. (laughs) We don't want to go see that kind of movie. We want to see the the kind that ends dramatically and everybody gets revenge. Everybody gets what they have coming to them. That's our culture. And if our culture is like that, is there any surprise that our churches often lack humble servants and cantankerous know-it-alls rule the day? I saw a video yesterday. I don't know if you saw this. Um, there was a, a meeting of school board up at Shippensburg, and, and a man stood up in front of the microphone, and he threatened to beat up anybody who voted yes for masks. And he was serious. He was ready for a fight. And then all these others got roused up, and they physically threatened the poor board members who were stuck with this hard decision. But bullying and physical threats don't cut it with Jesus that doesn't work Jesus said in Matthew 11:29 learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart the heart of a disciple is a humble heart in God's economy giving is receiving dying is living losing is finding or gaining the least is the greatest and the meekest is strength. That's why the meek will inherit the earth and not the proud. Think about those people sitting on the hill that day as Jesus was talking. You know, they probably came from all walks of life and they had the same expectations as everybody else did in the surrounding country. They were waiting for a Messiah to ride in on a great white horse and liberate them from the Romans and drive those Romans out, maybe even kill kill them all. That's what they were waiting for. And Jesus gives them this message that is so completely countercultural for who they were and who we are today. But wasn't it the one who submitted himself to suffer and die on the cross, who also kicked in the gates of hell and defeated death? The fourth thing Jesus has to say here is: Blessed are those who hunger. And thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They will be filled. Are you hungry for God? I'm hungry for a Big Mac. But are you hungry for God? Are you thirsty for righteousness? you find you just can't wait to get into the Word. You can't wait to get into the prayer room to talk to Jesus. You can't wait to sit and listen and hear him speaking and and to try to follow his lead. For the Pharisees, righteousness meant doing the right thing. It meant being in a right relationship with the Torah. Now, as much as we want to follow the words of the Bible, and especially the words of Jesus, it's not the words on the page we need to be in a right relationship with. It's Jesus himself, the one who the book's all about. Amen? In Jesus, we are made right with God. Our sins are forgiven, as if we'd never sinned at all. We talk about atonement, and we sometimes define that as at-one-ment, at one with God. That's why Jesus calls us righteous. Not, Not because we've done anything to get that title of righteous, to get that distinction. He calls us righteous because he made us righteous. He did it for us. He died on the cross. He took our sins and the cost of our sins, and he bore it himself. And he calls us righteous. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, that right relationship with God, God promises you will be filled. You will be filled. You ever thought about what that means? What are you gonna be filled with, righteousness? Righteousness is a quality given by God. It leads to the way we walk for God. But you will be filled with God himself. With God. That was part of the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. God with us on a very intimate and personal level. With God, submission to God is what brings us the filling of his spirit. Are you poor in spirit? Are you empty of the idea that you have anything that can open the door of heaven? Have you come to the point where you realize that it's only through Jesus that you can enter heaven? If you have, then yours is the kingdom of heaven. Do you mourn for someone, someone who's passed? Do you mourn for those who are lost? Do you mourn for some part of your life that hasn't been achieved or fulfilled or something that's been lost in that way? In Jesus, you will be comforted. Are you meek? Are you humble? Are you harnessed for Jesus, under his control, ready to leap forward, but at his command? Are you ready in that position? True disciples are ready. If you are humble, you will inherit the earth. Now, I noticed something as I was getting towards the end of this, uh, sitting at my desk yesterday, I'm thinking, you know what? He promised them heaven and earth. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. And you will inherit the earth. The redeemed earth. Under God's kingdom. Too many of us want to rule here and now. But it's the kingdom of heaven. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Psalm 42, 1. You know it so well. As the deer pants for streams of water. So my soul pants for you oh God. This intense hunger for God. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be filled with God's spirit, and we will have communion with him. And ultimately, we'll sit in his presence in a physical way. I don't understand how that works. I just know it's so. Those broken places in our lives will be healed. The mourning will be forgotten. There won't be any more tears and crying. No death or dying as we celebrate in God's kingdom together. And it's only in Jesus that we can find this comfort. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these beatitudes, these promises that you don't leave us where we're at, but you take us to a new place in Jesus, in you, an eternal place in your kingdom let us be your kingdom servants we rely on you now for everything we find our joy in knowing you and we find our joy in knowing that a better world awaits us as we remain in you in jesus name we pray amen